We'll look in verse number 4 of Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And uh, how about this? Men, why don't you read the, uh, the uh, verse 4, ladies verse 5, and then vice versa till we get to verse number 8, and all of us will read verse 8 together. Are you ready, men? Let's begin. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said he, ye have heard of me. For John truly... And when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Father in heaven, thank you for the joy of being a part of the church of Jesus Christ right here at First Baptist Church. Thank you for our kind friends that are here from Illinois and others that are visiting from different parts of our country. And we thank you, Lord, for the presence that uh, you have uh, blessed us with, with your coming. I pray you speak to our hearts, and I pray that, Lord, you bless the boys and girls that are being instructed in the things of God as they study about David and Goliath tonight in the Bible study that uh, the young people are teaching. Help them to do a good job and help the young people to be responsive and ready to hear and to grow. Lord, I pray that visitors would come and receive you as their Savior throughout the summer. Bless, I pray, our time together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're, con to, we're going to continue going through the books of the Bible. We have gone through Genesis to the book of John, and tonight we're picking up on the book of Acts. We're just going to take a few moments tonight and just soar over the book, and we're not going to give a good, um, thorough explanation of it, but boy, you won't find a better book in the Bible than the book of Acts. Find a, I really find my favorite book is whichever I'm reading at the time. <laughs> But uh, the book of Acts is a great, great book of the Bible. It's the fifth gospel, if you will. It's uh, John, and of course, Matthew, Jesus is king. And uh, Mark, he's the servant. Luke, he's the son of man. John, he's God. And in the book of Acts, he goes back to heaven. And when he goes back to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes down. And through the book of Acts, you see an amazing story. The, the, it starts with the Lord Jesus Christ going back to heaven and then locally in Jerusalem, and then to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and then in chapter 13 through the end, at the end of the passage of Scripture, Paul, the first missionary sent out on purpose, is in Rome, and all roads lead to Rome. And folks from all over the world are there, and God takes the gospel to Caesar's household. It's an amazing, amazing book of the Bible. It's a narrative. It tells a story. But it's a great book. I would encourage you, uh, Brother Hiles would say years ago, read Psalms for love, read Proverbs for wisdom, and read Acts for power. Because it infuses you. It, you, you read it, it's a book of action. It's a book where things are taking place, and God is doing a work through His Holy Spirit, and people are following the Spirit of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful book of the Bible. We read just those first four verses. Just real quickly, the author, the human author, is Dr. Luke. 
And Dr. Luke may have been one of the converts that Paul met in Philippi. Not positive about that. Uh, some other folks have a disagreement about that. But it would be, it would be interesting because when it says they, we, uh, is right before Philippi that he joined the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And they make their way on that missionary journey together. And Luke will be with Paul when he writes his last book that we have recorded in the Scripture, the book of 2 Timothy. He is there. Matter of fact, Paul says, only Luke is with me. And I'm sure Luke said, what am I, chump change or what? What is it going to, only me, you know, come on. But he is still there and he is faithful. He's a doctor, physician. He's very detailed. And uh, he writes the two longest books of our New Testament, the book of Luke and the book of of Acts. If you want to look for the volume of words, you would find those two books, probably the two largest of the New Testament. He's very detailed. He has done tremendous amount of interviewing to write the book of Luke. He says, having a perfect understanding of all things that happened from the very beginning, I think that Luke probably interviewed shepherds. He probably went and found the innkeeper and interviewed him because we have information on that. He listened to the shepherds tell the story about what they saw on the hill that night. He did many eyewitnesses and then, of course, he takes that same inquisitive uh, gift of writing things out. He's the teacher. You know, we look at Romans chapter 12 and we see all the things that God, seven gifts that God gives people beginning at prophecy and, and then at service and then teaching and those who are givers, those who are mercy, mercy givers and that kind of a thing, those who are administrators and, and rulers. But then you have the teacher. I would think that, that Luke would be a good example of someone who takes in information and is able to put it in print in a beautiful way. And he does give us and documents the first few years after Jesus goes back to heaven, what happens in the early church. And it is thrilling. I, I think the, uh, the last few chapters of the book of Acts has more drama than you could ever think about if you were writing a novel. Just a lot of drama, a lot of, a lot of things. You can put yourself right there where Apostle Paul is and that shipwreck that we studied about during the COVID crisis and things of that nature. But it's a great book of God's Word, and it's not just for information, it's for inspiration. Someone who reads the book of Acts is going to have to, if they're a Christian, they're going to be stirred, not just to sit, soak, and sour, but to do something with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love that about this book. Let's look at a couple things real quickly. And we looked at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but ye shall receive power... After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So though in the Spirit of God, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and he is there, and they say, is it going to be now that you're going to start and give the kingdom back to Israel? We're going to set up our own kingdom and get rid of the Roman government? And he said, for the days and the hours, that's not, you know, that's not your business. You need to stay here in Jerusalem until you be endued with power. But when the Spirit comes, uh, you are going to be witnesses of these things first, in Jerusalem, then in all Judea, Judea was that southern part, the educated, the white-collar folks of Jerusalem, of, of Israel. And then also in Samaria, that was the people that were not like them. The people who worshipped different, who ate differently, who cared for their family differently. They were third world people as far as the Jewish person was, was concerned. And to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you see the book of Acts, that's exactly what happened. It starts off in Jerusalem, goes to the surrounding areas and then makes its way to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's a beautiful testimony. Here's a couple thoughts. General synopsis of the, uh, um, 
of the book of Acts is Jesus went up. Jesus went up. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came down. Chapter, the third part there, the Christians went out and sinners came in. So the, the Lord Jesus goes up, the Holy Spirit comes down, the Christians go out, and sinners come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a story of people coming to know Christ in multitudes by the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of believers. Some will call it the, the Acts of the Apostles, but really, I think uh, a good name for it, and most people would agree with this, it's not the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. It's the Holy Spirit working in the lives of people. It's a great book. Here's a quick outline of the book, and we'll talk about a few things. Number one, uh, the, chapter one is the introduction. And then chapter two, we find the witnessing in Jerusalem. In chapters two through seven, most all the witnessing is done there is done in the capital city of Israel of Jerusalem. Chapter eight, you begin seeing the witnessing to the, to the surrounding areas through uh, chapter 12, and then witnessing to the ends of the earth. So witnessing Jerusalem, surrounding areas, and the ends of the earth through chapter 28. I think you probably are familiar with this, but I'll just walk you through it. There's 28 chapters, and chapter 1, Jesus goes back to heaven, and they select another apostle to replace Judas. They're, they're in a rented room. They call it the upper room there. There's 120 believers. Jesus started with 12. At the end, there were 120 men and women, and they are staying there waiting uh, during this time, probably waited about seven, maybe 10 days, but at least seven days. They stayed there. They prayed. They did some church business and, and elected a, uh, another person to replace Judas. And then chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down, and Pentecost takes place. Chapter 3, there's 3,000 people. Now it goes from 120 people to 3,120 people. Now many of which are not from Jerusalem. They're there uh, in the city to celebrate Pentecost. And so they're there and, they're, and then they get saved and then many of them will go off. But many of them will come to know the Lord as their Savior. Chapter 3, Peter and John, the two fellows that didn't get along with each other, are on their way at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to the house of prayer. They're going to pray together. You know, prayer unites us, does it not? You got a problem with someone, start praying about them. It'll pray, it'll, it'll, it'll change your perspective. And you want to pray with somebody. That's good. Peter and John, they, they kind of, they went together like oil and water while Jesus was alive. But after he went back to heaven, they figured it out. And the Holy Spirit came and brought unity and prayer brought a purpose. So they're going, they healed the man. And of course, that gives another opportunity for them to preach. They preach, uh, and then in chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and then, uh, then sent away. Chapter 5, the Lord Jesus purifies the church by dealing with Ananias and Sapphira. Chapter 6, the church grows, but they, need pro they have problems with, the, with the, uh, the widows who are complaining about not getting the attention. The apostles feel overwhelmed because they're doing the minutiae of ministry, and they need to give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word, and so they... They bring um, and bring in six deacons or six men to help the pastor, like we're doing tonight. They were called out from the people who helped them in the day-to-day -day administration. Chapter 7, Stephen preaches, and he is executed. We have the first martyr there, and they take him outside the city 
gates of Jerusalem. They stone him, make his wife a widow, his children orphans. And, and then the church begins to experience tremendous persecution. And so the other deacons, one of which is Philip, leaves uh, Jerusalem and moves into the hood of Samaria. Philip is a, has a wife. He has, we know he have, he'll have four daughters. And he moves their family into uh, Samaria. While he's there, he begins to give them the gospel. And many of them get saved and baptized and are added to the church. The, the apostles come up to confirm that God is speaking to the Samaritans as well as the Jews. And then in chapter 8, God tells uh, Philip to go out into the desert. And there he has him to leave the multitudes and go for one. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch who gets saved, a North African man who comes to know Christ as his Savior. After that, we find that Paul gets saved in chapter 9. Chapter 10, uh, Peter is called by God to go visit Cornelius, a Gentile, and give him the gospel, and, and Peter's eyes are open. And he realizes in chapter 11, he has to defend, why is he doing this? The Jewish friends were very upset with him. Why are you going to these, to these Gentile people? They still are stubborn in their outreach and prejudice and racist in the way that they, they feel like they selectively only want to give the gospel to the Jews. And Peter has to explain that. And then, of course, in chapter 13, uh, Paul is uh, now serving in, uh, in Antioch, and they go out with Barnabas on the first missionary journey in chapters 12 and 13 excuse me, 13 and 14, you find that, and that, that finished their first missionary journey. They go to Iconium and Lystra. That's where they meet Timothy for the first time, Eunice and Lois, his mother and grandmother. They come back to the church of Jerusalem, and they have the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15, and they begin to meet with the leaders and the pastors there and begin to challenge them about the fact that God doesn't want someone who gets saved to become a Jew in practice, he wants them to have the liberty. They shouldn't avoid immorality and abstain from fornication. They should not drink blood. They should not participate in sacraments so counterproductive to the scriptures. But beyond that, put no other burden on them. And then in chapter 16, Paul and Silas leave. And Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus. And Paul and, and Silas make out in the second missionary journey. And they begin... And that's where they go to Philippi and they win the Philippian jailers of the Lord and Lydia and her girlfriends and the damsel that is possessed with the devil. Chapter 17, they leave there. They go into Thessalonica and then they end up going, Paul goes on to Athens and into, into Corinth. And there he spends a year and a half in Corinth there with his folks and he makes his way back and they go out and they go to, to Ephesus for chapter 19. And then they're on their way back to Jerusalem. And his time, he has seven of his converts. And, of course, years are going by, and they finish their third missionary journey. And uh, they've got seven of his converts. Some of them, Segundus is one of them, and Prochorus, and several other guys are with them in the group. And they're going back to Jerusalem to give uh, their gifts to the Lord and to give their testimonies of what God's doing in the Gentile world. And uh, they stop by Ephesus or Miletus. They meet the Ephesian elders and give that great challenge where it's more blessed to give and to receive and tells them about how they need to uh, make sure that they, they feed the flock of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. When they get back to Jerusalem, there is where Paul is arrested. Uh, Asian Jews come into the temple. They spot him and they make up lies about him. And, of course, he is taken into custody and then he is 
He is saved out of Jewish custody by the Roman government, and in the rest of his life, uh, with the exception of a very small time, he will be a prisoner, and he will be spend standing before courts and kings and judges and juries and, uh, and uh, bailiffs and things of that nature the rest of his life uh, until he ends at the end. Of course, in chapter 27, you have the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul as he makes his way into Rome, and that's how the Holy Spirit will choose to end the first century uh, Christians with Paul going to Rome. And then, of course, we see what happens in 2 Timothy, the book of there. It tells that his head was taken, he was going to be offered. And uh, historians tell us that he took, they took his head off and, uh, and he continued to pass on the work of God. So that's the story. We can see a few things about this. I want you to notice, first of all, the soul winning conversions and the conversations that were had. Numbers of folks, but we see the Ethiopian eunuch was saved. And if you know that story in Acts chapter 8, you can look in verse number 26, he'll say that, uh, that in the middle of the revival that Philip was in, God says, Philip, get up and go into the desert area. And Philip didn't argue, he just went up and went. By the way, let me just tell you something real quickly. Look up here, look up in here real quickly. God is a fluid God. God is moving. We like, how many of you just don't like it when things change a lot? Most of us are like that, right? You like steadiness. You like things that don't change. That's not how God is. Now, God doesn't change himself. He's immutable. But he is working right now trying to get the world the gospel. And he will send people. And he will move people. I oftentimes say this. For some of us, in five years from now, if you are still sitting in this room on a regular basis, you'll probably do so against the will of God. Some of you, God has a place for you somewhere else outside this church family for the purpose of his eternal, uh, his eternal purpose. And when God sends people, it's okay. It's okay. Let God be God. I'm sure the church of, of Antioch did not want to lose Paul and Barnabas. They're two of the best in the, whole, in the whole church. I'm sure it was a sad day when they left, but it was good for God. And if it's good for God, it's good for everybody. I'm sure the people in Samaria there with Philip who had brought the gospel to them didn't want him to leave them and go out to the desert to win one. But he didn't belong to them. He belonged to God. And God so loved the world. He loved the Ethiopian man. And he sent him out there. And what God used in the soul winning testimony of the Ethiopian was the scriptures. If you remember, he's riding in his chariot. He's got the scroll of Isaiah. He's reading it. And the Lord tells Philip, go out there and join yourself to that chariot. That would be like running up to a modern day motorcade. He probably has horses and, and guards in front of him and behind him. And he's in a chariot and he is reading. And God says, go up and talk to that guy. He went up there and he said, understandest thou what thou readest? He said, how can I unless someone guide me? And they took the scriptures and at the same point preached unto him Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. By the way, uh, keep the word of God with you. When you witness to someone, use the scriptures. I love gospel tracts. And I heard Bob Bowen this morning tell about how that the preacher that led him to Christ used the track from Brother John R. Rice. It was kind of a funny story. If you didn't get to hear it, too bad, so sad, your dad, all right? But it's a funny story. But uh, nonetheless, his preacher went through John R. Rice's gospel track with him, 
But um, quite frankly, if I'm going to witness someone, if I can, if at all possible, I want them to see it from the Bible. Something mentally they think, oh yeah, your church wrote this. But when you show them something from the Bible, they kind of know that that's God's. That has not come from your church. That comes from God. And you can let them see the word of God. And I know it's the same verses and it's not that that gives them the gospel, but I think they're automatically. And when you as a Christian can turn in your places in the Bible, automatically you become an authority in areas that most unbelievers are not. If you can just take them places, they're thinking, oh man, this person knows what they're talking about. They can show me from the Bible. And you automatically become, uh, give, you give some credence to the person you're talking to. But it's beautiful to see the Ethiopian eunuch, he got saved because Philip could explain to him the Bible, the scriptures. Look at the next one that gets saved, and that's the Saul of Tarshish. What do you think, someone raise your hand and tell me, what do you think might have been the thing that kept on convicting Saul? He said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Yes, sir, brother. Claire? Yes. It was Christians. It was their testimony. Every time he would take a man or woman to jail, and he would, he would do it, even though he was wreaking havoc in their life and causing tremendous amount of pain, he watched them suffer. He watched their testimony. There was one particular testimony that we know that he observed. What, what testimony was that? Yes, sir, Jason? Stephen. He was holding the coats of those who were pelleting him with rocks. They, they gave it to him and set it down to his feet. And he was one of the Sanhedrin that voted that Stephen die. And remember what Stephen's face was like. What was it like? His face of an angel. And what did Stephen say? He said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. I think he had nightmares about that. I think he, he couldn't figure that out. As he saw the Christians suffer, it was the testimony of another person that drew his heart. It was the scriptures for the Ethiopian eunuch, but it was a testimony that drew Paul's heart, or Saul's heart, to the Lord. How about Lydia? Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman. The Bible says she was a seller of purple in chapter 16 and verse 14. Her and her girlfriends were down by the river in Philippi. And they were where prayers were want to be made, the Bible tells us. And I think this represents, some people come to Christ through the scriptures, and they've been reading the Bible. I heard a testimony with uh, Miss um, April Clark on, on Monday or Tuesday when she gave her testimony. She read the book. I was, I was listening to her tell me this. I thought, I thought it was kind of neat. She said, Pastor, I was, I was so argumentative. I wanted to debate. I thought I was really good at debating people. And, uh, but in my heart, I realized point by point, I was wrong. Even though I would debate strongly on my position, I knew I was empty. Because I was so terrified. I was, I was debating a pastor, a Baptist pastor, showing me from the Bible. And I, he would say what the Bible says, and I would say the church says. He would say the Bible says, I would say the church says. And I would argue with him when he would come to the house. And she says, I was terrified one night, he said, April, close the Bible. He said, I'm not going to argue with you anymore. And she said, I didn't feel like I won. I feel like I lost. I got scared because I knew I was wrong. 
And he had something I didn't have, and he closed his Bible and said, he's not going to argue with me anymore. I want him to keep talking to me. He says, no, I'm not going to do it, April. I'm done. He said, if you ever want to talk to me again, you read the book of John ten times. If you read the book of John ten times, then I'll talk with you again. Until that time, I don't want to argue with you again. She said, it terrified me. When he closed that Bible, that he was done with me. I got so scared. It took me a while, but I read the book of John. And 2 o'clock in the morning, she got on her knees and believed and received Jesus Christ as her Savior. But you know, I find that she was searching. Some people come to Christ because of the Scriptures. They read the Scriptures. Some people, it's because of the testimony of someone at work or someone that they know that went through a difficult time and they look to God. Some people get saved because of searching. They, they just, they got that curiosity. They know they're not right, but they don't know what the right thing is. I think Lydia is a good example of that. Then the fourth one is the Philippian jailer. Why do you think he got saved? Anybody have any doubt? You know the story, don't you? He thought he had some hardened criminals in there. And then uh, he heard them sing in the midnight hour. But what was it that probably brought that guy to the Lord? What did, what's a couple thoughts? Anybody have a thought on that? Yes, Brother Randy. Paul's attitude, is that what you said? Yeah, I think it was. It was also the testimony of the Apostle Paul. But then when he's getting ready to kill himself, if someone had mistreated you and put you in there in, in handcuffs and now you're out of it, and a guy's thinking about killing himself, the average guy would say, it's been nice knowing you. <laughs> what did Paul say? Do thyself no harm. Don't hurt yourself. What would you say that is an act of what? Compassion, love, care, mercy. He said, do thyself no harm. Don't, don't hurt yourself. And I think that's a good testimony. I think also he was afraid. Don't you think so? The Bible says, and some have compassion, making a difference, and others saved with fear. He was afraid. He thought, either I'm dying now or I'm going to die tomorrow morning when my boss comes and all these prisoners are gone. So I might as well do it now, kill myself now. But you see, it's an act of fear and, and also an act of compassion that brought him to the Lord. I had the joy to lead a man to Christ some time ago and it's a sweet story, but I witnessed to him nine, uh, excuse me, for nine years, casually, and three times I went through the entire, entire gospel with him, and he got very angry, very frustrated with me. He closed my Bible, he handed it back to me, he said, don't you ever do that again to me. Another time, I, I braved myself and did it again. He said, if that's true, my mother's going to hell. And if my mother's going to hell, I don't think I want to go to heaven. One time, he called his wife, Joanne, we're getting out of here. And he just, come on, let's go. He just walked out of my house in a huff. But the Lord did something sweet one day. Linda called me and said, John, I think our friends, he was a hard worker, he makes, a, he makes good money, but he went through about a five-week layoff at his job, just did, couldn't find work. And they needed to pay their rent. And Linda said, John, I think, we, I think if we could help them with the rent, that would be good. And I said, well, how much is it? She said, $700. We looked in our savings account. We had $1,100. I said, well, let's go get it. And I went down to the bank at Wells Fargo, took out the $700, and went in there and called him. And he came to my house, and I gave him the money. I said, don't worry about it, man. Just we want to help you. We care about you. And he just he, he couldn't figure that out. He's like, thank you. I'll get it back to you. And sure enough, about three months later, he brought it back to me and gave it back to me. But then about a year later, he said, John, you know how you give everybody, at the end of the service, you're always asking people if they're saved? And you do that in your television broadcast? I said, yeah, I know. 
So you do the same thing there. I said, no. Hey, guess what, John? I got saved. <laughs> and I said, great. He goes, but I didn't get saved because of what you said. I got saved because of $700. He said, John, I can't get $700 out of my mind. Every time I think about saying no to the gospel, I think of $700. You and Linda gave to me when I couldn't get my guys at work, my own family, nobody, all the guys I would drink with and play soccer with, none of them, all the guys at work, none of them would help me. I asked all of them. And you had to be the only person on the planet to give me $700. He said, it just killed me every time I thought about saying no to Jesus. The only person that represented Jesus gave me money. You know, it's just important to learn to give compassion and opportunities to people. Keep on working for them. It was nine years of working with him. Had I known that, I'd give him $700 the first day I met him. <laughs> you know, God, God does things, and he works in our lives, and he uses compassion and sometimes fear to work in people's lives. Look at the rest of the Bible, say if we can, please. Key men in the book of Acts. Someone tell me who you think the first key man is there. Anybody have a thought on that? Raise your hand. Tell me. Yes, sir. Peter. Peter's number one. Peter's number one. I put Stephen there, not because he's mentioned a lot, but he is in six and seven, but he really is a kind of a, he's a page turner there in the middle of those early days, and I put Stephen there. And then who do you think the last guy is? Oh, you're so smart. That's great. Paul is that right there. Let's hear a couple lessons and we'll conclude tonight. Number one, being led by the Holy Spirit is a necessity. Oh, how we need to be led by the Holy Spirit. You'll do better things by accident with the Holy Spirit's help than you can on purpose try and do the right thing. The shortcut to the Christian life is letting the Holy Spirit drive. But most of us are control freaks. We want to control what's going on, where we go, what we do, what kind of life we want, what's comfortable for us, and the Holy Spirit's looking to fill us. And I think being led by the Holy Spirit is a great way to be a soul winner. But ye shall receive power after that. The Holy Ghost has come upon you. Be not drunk with wine. Where's next us to be? Filled with the Holy Ghost. Walk in the Spirit that you not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you therefore receive Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk ye in him. Learning to walk in the Spirit is a key aspect. Boy, if you're owning a business or you're an employee or you're a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or a single adult or whatever it is your role in life, you'll be a much better you if the Holy Spirit can control you. Number two, God has a plan to reach people with the gospel. God wants the whole world and friend, if God's in a, in a pursuit to get the world the gospel, we are labors together, not for God, but with him. Are you with him? Talking to new converts on Sunday about buried with him in baptism. Colossians chapter, chapter 3 tells that you're buried with him. But the truth of the matter is, after I'm buried with him in baptism, I'm raised to walk what kind of a life? Newness of life. And I need to be with him in getting the world the gospel. Did you think about the loss today? Did you give a tract? Did you pray for a missionary? Did you pray for a country of the world? Did you pray for someone that's in need? Listen, be with him. God is a global God. 96% of the world's population lives somewhere besides America. That means there's 96% chance you and I are supposed to do something about it. And if you go to heaven sitting on piles of money which God could use to bring people the gospel, God help you. 
The Bible tells us in James chapter 5, you rich men, weep and howl for the misery that's going to come upon you when you realize that you kept too many clothes in your closet and they're moth-eaten. Rather than putting them out into circulation, your gold and silver you keep, it, it cankers. You're thinking about 30 years instead of 30 million years. You're thinking about your family and your future instead of about eternity and someone else's destiny forever. We're thinking about our comfort zone rather than going out and getting the gospel to people. I want to encourage you uh, to get involved with God's plan to reach the world with the gospel. He uses men, he uses material, he uses money, and he uses um, media in our day. And boy, we ought to find some way to get that out. And then the last thing, real quickly, let God use you in that plan. Let God use you in that plan. Whether it is getting gospel tracts, I talked to a man that was working through discipleship lesson, and last night he said to me, I told the Sunday school teachers this today, he said, um, Pastor, can you get me 200 tracts? And here's a guy that's in his 11th lesson of discipleship. He said, I could buy them, but I think our tracts have the address on them so they will know where to go if they get saved. I said, yeah. He says, I feel like I, I live in St. John, so I need to go to everywhere in my neighborhood and just walk out and make sure everybody knows how to get to heaven from here. Whatever you can do, you do it. God's doing the work. Keep talking to people. Every person you talk to, you ought to be thinking about this. How far can I go? Can they, can they let me give the gospel to them? What can I do to help them get to heaven from here? It's God's plan. They get saved. And may God help us. The book of Acts really stimulates us in that way.